<laughs> In fact, just leave it alone. Zoom in it's graphics. Good. Oh, it's, it's running. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Cool, thank you. Thank you. I mean, this is part of the I think we're talking about the clan as our key to start. Before we get into that. Okay, good afternoon. Thank you all for joining us for the last panel um, and also the last of three leftovers panels we've had. Um, I guess I'll just briefly introduce the group to start off with. Uh, th th these three panels have been part of what we're calling Leftovers Live. Leftovers is a Facebook group for online communist discussion. Um, we're a very wide-ranging group. We kind of cover stuff from ethics to Marxology to the modes of production debate. If that sounds interesting to you, please join. We also have a kind of mimetics group called Two Left Come to Function, if that's your kind of deal. So one of the main um, guiding threads of, of leftovers is we're very interested in unitary theories, or a fair number of our regulars are very interested in unitary theories of capitalism, so dealing with topics like gender, racialization, and sexuality um, through a kind of unifying framework. And under that remit, we have arranged um, panels to do with queer social reproduction, both at London uh, last year in November, and now again here in New York City. Um, right, on a personal note, I'm very grateful to Leftovers for kind of helping me out making my trip over here. In particular, Gus and uh, Nathaniel have been really great. Cheers to HM for letting us like have three panels on two days, that's quite a lot. Um, and the previous chairs were Michelle O'Brien and Nathaniel Dixon, and thanks to both of those people. Also, it's Anya's birthday, so happy birthday, Anya. Perfect timing, I might say. Um, right, so today we have three wonderful thinkers who are all Marxists, all members and militants for the Red Bloom uh, Collective. Communist Collective, yeah. The Red Bloom, the Red Bloom Communist Collective, um, which is based here in New York City um, and part of the Marxist Center. Um, so the order we're going to go in is going to be Kate, Aaron, and Barnes. Um, Kate is an anthropologist focused on South Africa who has written widely on Marxist feminism. Uh, and the labor movement as an active participant. Uh, they're currently a member of Fordham Faculty United PCE and a representative for the Marxist Center. Aaron is a mostly cis teacher at Juilliard uh, and literally a communist. He's been working on a manuscript, developing and defending, sorry, I didn't deliver that very well. Anyway, he's been, <laughs> I'm not Ash Sarker, I do try. Anyway, he's, he's working on a manuscript, developing and defending the theory side of social reproduction theory, which should be out for Pluto next year. Don't miss it, there'll probably be a panel, I imagine. And um, Barms is a communist queer, construction worker, part-time falling rate of profit and makeup enthusiast. Okay. Um, we will begin with Kate. Okay. Um, hi. How's everybody? This is my my third my third panel uh, for this conference, so I'm not proud or tired, as we like to say. But um, this paper, actually, I have previously uh, given a, a very similar version of this paper in London. So I know a couple people here have already heard most of what I'm going to say. But I want to give a little editorial context before I start, which is to say, um, at HM in London, I was very excited uh, to be there. I'd been to a bunch of different HM conferences, helped organize one here in New York, been to a bunch in London and Canada. Um, and uh, last time I went to London, it was just uh, a totally sort of different feeling, vibe, environment. Uh, we sort of had a little like queer, communist, feminist, Marxist conference within a conference. And it was just a really thrilling and exciting uh, experience for me. And I have to say, I was hoping that would be somewhat repeated here this weekend. And I have to say, I think it has been. Um, so also really, really exciting. Um, Okay, so all that said, the title of this talk is Queer Workers, Social Reproduction, and Left Strategy, which seems a little ambitious now that I'm reading it. But um, it's a, it, so it's a, bit, a little bit in, rooted in that kind of editorializing. It's a, it's a sort of best of times, worst of times moment for the socialist left, I think, in the USA and in many other parts of the world. Um, and without going into a kind of blow-by-blow -blow state of the movement, uh, 
uh, account, I want to say it's a it's a moment that I think has produced an environment for debate where it seemed like we can, uh, real advancements can be made in Marxism in general, Marxist feminism and queer and trans Marxism in particular and for their direct relevance to strategy. It feels to me like we're finally having a conversation with real stakes and finally bringing in kind of queer communist perspectives into kind of the mainstream broad uh, strategic questions for the left. So that's exciting. Um, I don't really like calling the sort of argument I'm going to be making today queer or trans or even feminist, even though it is. But on one level, I feel like it, these are simply elaborations of Marxism made into useful tools of struggle. And I want to get away from the sense that these questions are appropriately siloed from the center of debate. Um, it seems to me that we have really, uh, really, we've we started uh, hitting, hitting that point, I think, pretty well and pretty hard. So thank all of you because uh, that's a collective effort. Um, one of the most vigorous debates has been about the theoretical and political approach that Marxist thinkers and organizers should take toward uh, so-called identity politics in general, but toward queer politics and trans politics in specific. Broadly, there are sort of there are often assumed to be two camps, although with a range of nuances within them and some significant overlaps and some recent quite stark uh, micro divides, right? Within the various camps, um, uh, and I think it's a it's a de it's a debate that I think begins to draw in and infect many of the historical oppositions around questions of left strategy, and it's best addressed in that register. Um, often, the only cl the, the class only side of the debate, or or what what uh, sometimes gets called the class reductionist side of the debate, although. I, I don't like either of those terms very well, um, often imagines as its enemy camp of, uh, on, of the left that doesn't really exist and which advocates for and concerns itself largely with matters of representation or calculations of privilege. I mean, I don't know anybody here whose uh, politics are, are like that, but I often hear arguments against those politics in spaces like this. So that is one of the things that confuses me. Um, in particular, as the Democratic Socialists of America um, begins to approach the 80,000 members or something like that, I've heard, in terms, uh, it, it, its, its strategy and practice is being developed. And one of the questions that has most interested me and which strikes me as most urgent um, in overcoming this kind of misdiagnosis of, of, of anti-IDPOL politics is the significance of gender, sex, and sexuality for a new strategy for worker organizing. Um, a queer Marxist feminist uh, frame not only calls into question the divide between identity and class, but also undermines a historical opposition between shop floor organizing uh, inside or to win uh, unions and other strategies for worker and socialist organizing outside the workplace. In part, the debate about identity versus class politics, um, I think, was crystallized in the last, I don't know, 18, I don't know, 18 months? How long has it been? I feel like time has has no meaning to me anymore. But anyway, um, <laughs> since Assad Haider's book, Mistaken Identity, uh, and a series of responses to it, and then a series of evolutions of that conversation has continued since then. The text points to the fruitlessness of socialist class politics that poses itself against and in opposition to identity politics and calls for an insurgent universalism. It's been covered a lot uh, in, I think, many of the places that we all hang out. And so I don't want to say more specifically about the book, except that uh, this paper is in some ways a response to some of Heider's critics on the right end of the spectrum uh, who have called for an anti-particular social democratic program modeled on uh, Kautsky. Um, an advanced strategy that simply can't do both. Um, class politics and any of the specifically anti-racist, feminist, or by implication, pro-trans activity. On the left end of this uh, critique, the same program is instead advanced through the tactical use of anti-racism and other direct confrontations with chauvinism, intellectual and shop floor politics, and is motivated as a kind of moral responsibility rather than a strategic necessity. I would add there's a kind of third iteration and development of this, uh, and, and I would think, I think, improvement of this particular strain of politics that actually says, uh, you know, Confronting chauvinism is a full part of the socialist strategy, but it still sees this really in parallel, right, to class politics, right? And class politics are something that happened on the shop floor, and uh, gender and race are things that happen 
typically outside the shop floor, right? So um, I think that's that's a mistake. And actually, interestingly, it's a mistake that reverses the, the identitarian politics that they're uh, sort of criticizing and I think in many cases imagining. Um, the strategic necessity of organizing queer and trans workers and the political possibility of a deeper program implied by this is what I hope to sketch out. Just as identity and class are a false dichotomy, so too I think are the oppositions between workplace organizing, affinity group models, and so-called community struggles. Probably electoral strategies too here should not be counterposed, but I think that's going to have to be next year's paper um, or an elaboration on my panel from yesterday. I don't know. We're going to talk about that at the bar, um, but I don't want to talk about elections anymore today or possibly for the next 48 hours. Um, <laughs> to take this up, we need to engage uh, another book that's been on, uh, uh, on a lot of people's mind, anyway, mine, um, Kim Moody's On New Terrain. Elsewhere and soon, this was supposed to be so, so soon that... Uh, it was going to be last year, but anyway, eventually, maybe, um, I, a long essay that I've written about Kim Moody's On New Terrain will be published by Viewpoint. Um, I hope that it will. Um, but for the purpose, uh, for this purpose, I, I want to sort of pick out and elaborate on an argument I, I made there, but kind of with its queerest, transist implications. In sum, that piece argues that Moody's updated analysis implies the importance of social reproduction theory for those now taking up the rank and file strategy today, and introduces the necessity of analyzing a second category of quote-unquote choke point, you know, us uh, rank-and-file strategy types like to talk about choke points, um, and I would say that there are choke points of social reproduction that need to be theorized as strategic. There I argue that the teacher strike wave demonstrated that social reproduction choke points are now central to a new wave of struggle. Workers who are paid to do the work of the daily remaking of the working class in itself play a crucial role in expanding and politicizing workplace struggles and raising universal class-wide demands, really universal class-wide demands, or universalizing class-wide demands, I would say, precisely because workers in these usually feminized reproductive sect sectors like education <coughs> are by definition in daily contact with a deepening crisis of care that impacts the entire class. Um, the periodization of recent history of class struggle and the model of its development that Moody maps is one that he presents as complementary to, a, to a, a kind of a Regian frame, which I thought was just wild. I was not expecting that. Um, I argue this precisely lends itself to incorporating and validating Beverly Silver's analysis, which has often been seen as counterposed to Kim Moody's, right, um, of the role of social reproduction struggles in public sector strikes. At, at the early stages of periods of class struggle over the last century and even more. I then use Moody's formulation of uh, transitional organi organizations to help break down dichotomies between workplace organizing and other models of working class organizing and to sketch out the questions that Moody raised in his uh, Jacobin reflection on the rank and file strategy concerning the underdeveloped aspects of the rank and file strategy most urgently, most urgently for anybody who is in uh, either one of the debate panels today or yesterday, um, that of how it relates to socialist politics and organization. Um, rather than lay out the further details of that argument, I'm going to add to it by explaining the role I think that queer and trans workers play in the strategic collaboration. It's not enough to say that the logistical and productive choke points and socially productive ones are each necessary and not on their own sufficient to express the power and breadth of any potential class for itself, politics, proletarian politics. A third element of this strategy is, I think, crucial to its full development. Um, rather than make this choke point image uh, bleed, I think it's, it's simpler to say um, that socialists and communists must recognize and engage the uneven development of class consciousness with the recognition that its unevenness is rooted in experiences that are particular, but which at once both foreshadow and make possible the development of a class consciousness that goes beyond the politics of bread and butter. Um, but to one of, of bread and roses. Um, roses here signifying, of course, the humane and insurgent response to and recognition of the deeper and universal alienations of working class exploitation. The length of the work week as a perpetual site of struggle the experience of direct violent repression by the state and the family, the embodied humiliations and alienations of working class subjectivity that are particularly crystallized in the experience of queer and trans workers. This is not distinct from what we've seen developing concretely in terms of the connection between feminist activity and the 
rather, rather it's an intensification of this dynamic. From strikes of thousands of workers at hotels and the fast food industry sparked by the Me Too movement against sexual harassment as a modality of labor control to the recent, uh, to not so recent, to walkouts in the tech sector around racism and sexism at work to the developing kind of generative, generative interaction between teacher wildcatters and a kind of a, a overtly feminist movement against Kavanaugh, against uh, abortion uh, restrictions and the grassroots struggle in the state um, around those questions. Queer and trans workers have the potential to intensify this connection between workplace organizing and class consciousness, between shop floor struggles, social movements, and class demands. To understand how the first task is to locate queer people in the labor market and movement through a concerted effort of worker inquiry. Investigation that can and should uncover unexpected and surprising connections. But even before our, our full worker inquiry of where are the queers, where are the trans people is complete, um, I think we can, uh, I, I want to hypothesize some things about that. I want to say that I think queer and trans workers represent a dynamic and specific sliver of the class, um, but you know this is to be proved in ethnographic investigation. Um, one that is vastly overrepresented in the work of paid social reproduction, particularly in the material organization of his expression as intellectual labor that we can maybe elaborate collectively, but also to forge a link between this and the dynamism of the precarious and flexible family as a capitalist institution. So while as a group we, we present a politicized network that bridges each of these three nodes of strategic catalyzation, here maybe queers can demonstrate that the role of affinity groups can actually play a broader left strategy instead, instead of be, be it, or instead of being considered a kind of like ultra left, you know, subcultural deviation, you know, where all you fucking weird people hang out, um, uh, it's it's a kind of organic vanguard. I know that's a dangerous word to say, but one of several, right? Not the only one, um, but representing that potential as an actually existing social force, a basis basis of militant minority organizing across and between workplace and community produced. Uh, by and arrayed against sexual violence, reproductive authoritarianism, and the coercions of family as, and, and as forces that limit and damage working class people and which present barriers to the actualization of class politics, okay? In healthcare in particular, I think that uh, we have played uh, the role of politicizing healthcare access as class politics and of making political and organizational linkages between patients, providers, researchers, um, and have organized to advance research agendas and test protocols formulated actually by working class people. So a kind of bottom-up science, a bottom-up politics of science, right, I think is a particularly queer and trans contribution to class politics. Um, and one that is really an expression of a kind of, of auto-inquiry, auto right, auto-social inquiry. Um, this, the classic example is, of course, ACT UP, using direct action to demand care for HIV-positive and AIDS-affected people, um, now similar and potentially, uh, now, uh, sorry, and now trans healthcare can at times be seen to be playing a similar and potentially politicizing role. The particular role uh, of, of queer and trans people in making healthcare access into class politics over the last 40 uh, years or so um, is especially important to highlight, given that healthcare is also is often precisely raised as a, a kind of archetypal, uh, Kautskyist type uh, universal demand for the class reductionist left. Oof, that's so mean. Um, from the perspective <laughs> illustrated by its advocates in the figure of the kind of tragically closeted civil rights leader uh, uh, Bayard Rustin, queer and trans people, as well as disabled people or immigrants or any other category of people whose needs can be seen by this, but from a certain perspective as particular. Um, or identity-based, represent an obstacle to the imagined negotiation with the ruling class for adoption of the reform, an extra expense or distracting kind of culture wars set piece that disrupts and divides class solidarity. Mm. Um, but from an organizing and class struggle perspective, we represent a reservoir of movement history, strategy, and, exp and experience. We're, we, we're cadre for the healthcare struggle. Um, and at that level of consciousness, the demand by trans people for care raises the possibility of healthcare and also social reproductive struggle as a politics that refuses to separate, kind of self-fashioning from survival, or to surrender to a, to a one-size-fits-all, profit-driven standard of what constitutes a bare minimum necessity. The lived experience of a small group of people recalls and exemplifies that original demand, central to the communist vision, that to each according to her need entails a recognition of different individual and particular needs, uh, and, and that the distinction between need and desire is as much an artificial project, product of capitalist logic as 
that division between politics and economy or public and private. Further, queer and trans existence and class formation plays a crucial role in the development of an ongoing feminist wave as a working class project. While any given category of identity has its quislings and avatars of bourgeois, bourgeois representation, the lived reality of queer people brings to the fore gender as a relational and political process rather than a seeming transparent and natural one. We make plain the absurdity of, say, Jordan Peterson's lobster-based naturalistic fallacy, but also the feminist version of this sort of thing that insists on a biologically reductive sex class as contra a Marxist politics as social class and class as war. Our lives and experience insert indeterminacy, both in the sense of a compelling feminism to reckon with the possibility of actually existing non-binary forms of gender made livable through a combination of self-assertion and forms of community recognition and solidarity, right? That's a kind of solidarity too. And by proposing even binary genders as changeable, right, across time uh, and across individual lifespans, right? Um, Queer and trans people make visible in the world the crucial Marxian analytic move that what appears is often uh, enough the opposite of what it is um, or becoming something else, right? Queer Marxist feminism in context marks and must insist at once on the particular liberation of individuals and that that liberation cannot be reliably embodied or represented by individual women moving on up in the world. When feminist women become bosses, they too are transformed across the span of a life into something essentially different. <laughs> Anti-feminist, in fact, if not in superficial form. Instead, our indeterminacy opens the possibility that core feminist demands, bodily autonomy and the freedom from regulating violence of the gendering order of paid work and family life never only apply to one gender and that they are not separate or to the side of class but constitute how classes live for everyone. Oh good, because I'm getting there. The sketch of an argument has a very specific implications with respect to less strategies for resisting the right. This perspective is necessary for a class politics in general and a socialist or communist politics that can go beyond the failures of the liberal approach to feminism and queer politics, which emphasizes diversity, inclusion, and tolerance, precisely because it raises the possibility of resistance to liberal cross-class co-optation, insists on, and because it distinguishes itself from reductionist invocations of class. Um, uh, oh. Okay, so... Uh, I'm going to skip a whole thing about transitional organizations. If you want me to talk to you about transitional organizations, we're going to have to do that later. Um, it must be especially pointed out these days that rank and file strategy does not assert and in fact explicitly denies that the workplace is the only or most important source of worker consciousness. And that it is this recognition that drives its vision of social movement unionism. A lengthy section of the piece roots the weaknesses of the USA workers movement precisely in the history of, Af of, of African slavery, uh, indigenous genocide, in building a working class historically divided against itself and often a more mobilized in an explicitly political way around its own internal divisions than against capital. The piece saves for a special interlude on the role of union, the union bureaucracy as both a repository of some of the most backward historical forms of worker consciousness and as a break on militancy in moments of upsurge. Can somebody please take this and put this in the last panel that I was sitting in? Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, uh, or even simply of militant fight back on its specific role as an engine of anti-communism, meant broadly as a purging of all leftists and radicals from the labor movement. The piece attempts to synthesize both a non-sectarian assertion of the crucial role of socialists in, if not activating, in potential rank, uh, in potential rank and file rebellion when the conditions are there, and elucidates a compelling set of historical examples that underlie the urgency of this and some of the recurring obstacles to the full development of active class consciousness. Um, not only rearguard action by the bureaucracy, <laughs> anti-communism, racism, and other chauvinisms, but also sectarianism among socialists broadly committed to the strategy. Um, so we represent one concrete way of reframing this question away from a kind of coalitional model of politics based either on identity or nominally against it and organized through bureaucratic alliances and instead propose uh, transitional forms that organize the transition to, to a communist horizon along class lines rather than around them. Thank you very much, Kate. We're going to move on to Aaron. I'll let you introduce yourself. Okay, yeah. 
Um, well, I've been introduced, but so I, I wanted to start by thanking Jules for inviting me on this panel and thanking Kate, Michelle, and Barms, uh, who have been practically and theoretically really important to me. The ideas I'm developing uh, here simply would not be possible without so much community and camaraderie I've benefited from. In fact, I really can't claim private ownership of any of the ideas that I'm developing here at all, as the conditions for their production, and in many cases, the form and content themselves, stem from a share, shared community of reflection that I've benefited from a lot. So it's really a pleasure. I'm honored to contribute as well, and another pitch for leftovers. Mm -hmm. The outward-facing public presentation, so also the recognition of theoretical work, often gives a surplus of valuation to individual articulators while occluding or mystifying social conditions of their possibility. So let's just not do that here. <laughs> yeah. So the point of this paper, however, is not to show how the social paths of the production of ideas are hidden, but to show how some family resemblance of ideas around social reproduction theory can be seen and developed in ways that are, I think, a bit more queer, and in particular, more trans-inclusive than they have been in the past. My goal, then, is to take a valuable Marxist insight, articulated in some, by now, classical determinations of social reproduction theory, and show what those earlier forms are not the only and far from the best way to conceive the theoretical side of social reproduction theory. Basically, social reproduction theory uh, can and also really needs to be a theory that is, found, that is in its founding structure open to exploring queer social reproduction, especially if it's to avoid the pitfalls of some gender normative, even essentialist commitments that shaped how social, that shaped its development in the past. So um, I do not want to queer social reproduction theory, uh, despite the title of the panel and whatever that might mean uh, in the first place. I mean to show that social reproduction theory can, and in light of its best social theoretic and liberatory commitments, really should be constructed as a theory extremely open to, tra to trans, gender nonconforming, and broadly speaking, queer modes of desire, living, making life, and reproducing diverse labor powers. I'm a philosophy person by training, so I'm going to try to think really carefully about how categories and concepts are structured, because the underlying structure or grammar of a social reproduction theory can take quite a few different forms. Simply saying society is reproduced or that women do a lot of socially reproductive labor isn't specific enough. More specifically, and despite the extreme debt we owe all, we all owe to them, in different ways, I think both Silvia Federici and Lise Vogel uh, can be improved upon. To be sure, I agree with so much of their development in challenging a singularly value-productive lens to think the relations and logics that set obviously sexed valorization processes on their paths. Still, Federici's early focus on the female body as the recurring locus of primitive accumulation marked female sex bodies as a, if not the, key grounds to bootstrap capital accumulation. Uh, the body is, without a doubt, central on any materialist notion of history or social theory, but the naturalized body, present as a primitive resource and a bald fact, is, even if not intentional, a deeply conservative commitment. Vogel, for her part, offers a more compelling politi political economy than Federici, uh, and links, so, uh, links social, social circuits to the internal circuits of capital reproduction, but relies on just and only the political economy and biology to think the category woman, and therefore also women's oppression. So those are just really briefly the two <coughs> criticisms I'm going to further develop now, and I'll try to end with some uh, a superior framework. Following Federici and Caliban and the Witch, we are, uh, we are shown how, from rapes to witch hunts, bodies were turned into labor powers by the nascent capitalist demand for regular, uninterrupted profit, and that to do so, quote, the body had to die so labor power could live, end quote. This idea that the body prior to early capitalist development had to die, had to die suggests that there was a stable, clear, natural, pre-capitalist body mm -hmm. that was to become the subject of violence. This ahistorical, natural account of the body only partially complicated by the historical story of revolutions imposed by the logic of capital, actually forms, to my mind, a normative commitment and key feature of Federici's social philosophy, even or precisely when she recognizes the changed, contorted, abused, and resistant bodies produced and reproduced today. The pre-rational, magical conception of the body had to be killed and replaced with a form of subjectivity appropriate to the demystified industry of more regularized value extraction. Uh, thus, for Federici, there is not much of a materialist and relational conception of embodied subjects, much less of history, just the force of diversely realizable and resistant embodiments prior to capital, oddly somehow not contorted by pre-capitalist forms of domination, uh, and then there's sometimes violent, proud, and tragically quashed resistance against the constraint of a narrowly rationalizing uh, quasi-pseudo-proto-capitalist social order. 
The way bodies are produced, reproduced, symbolically conceived, socially acknowledged, related in and through a social order and struggle, and the so many ways they are put to work or excluded from satisfying social need and various demands for surplus all falls by the wayside. Instead, we get an account of the body as such, which as such undergoes or fights some change. The primacy of the body is therefore what I'll call, for Federici, an ontological commitment. Federici's social reproduction is committed in a thicker sense to the bare being and brute fact of bodies rather than to the situated and relational determination of bodies. In an odd way, then, bodies are sexed naturalistically and never truly gendered except through the singularly liberatory sexed determination of resistance on one side and the violently sexed reformation to fit the needs of capital on the other. Bodies are gendered, but they don't seem to do any gendering through relational practice. So, uh, there is less for Federici an exogenous shock on women's bodies. The foreign logic of capital demands something of the body, such that the site of resistance and repression is then the body as well. But on this view, it's hard to see the movement towards what she calls a Cartesian construction of the body, which makes it distinct from and controlled by mind. I mean, what happened to make this acceptable, this Cartesian view acceptable, let alone plausible in a nascent worldview? Is it because the structure of the Cartesian body keys into the structure of capital's disciplinary demands? But then Federici can't comp cannot explain how bodies and their powers combine to create the likelihood and acceptability of Cartesian thinking, and then its widespread dissemination in the first place. This kind of idealism forces her to either assume against a romantic pre-capitalist story, some constant version of the capitalist requirements for rationalizing more diffuse forms of embodiment, or don't ahistorically assume capitalist pressure, and then we're left with the inexplicable violence of an exogenous, exogenous shock not itself prepared for by the very bodies it comes to dominate. So either no history of the relations of production, or in the crucial sense, sexed bodies without it either the inevitability of a seamless fit or the impossibility of a social reproduction explanation of new and newly violent social relations. Okay. Federici describes the move to capitalism in the following way, and I quote, not only did the proletariat body lose all naturalistic connotations, but a body function began to emerge in the sense that the body became a purely relational term, no longer signaling any specific reality, but identifying instead any impediment to the domination of reason. This means that the whole proletariat became a body, in particular the weak, irrational female." Unquote. So Federici is clear. The relational determination of embodiment is an advent of capitalist ideology, not a methodological premise for history as such. The reduction of bodies to relational determination is a problem, not a gift or resource for challenging oppressive logics. And the female is the logical conclusion of this relational body. Finally, this is problematic rather than emancipatory, precisely because it no longer signals any natural specific reality. So sure, Federici sees this as a problem crafted by capital in its Cartesian notions of the body, but the solution is never, given Federici's naturalistic ontology, to work out the po political possibilities for transcending a regime of social reproduction, given the possibilities such relations open up. Now, what kind of social reproduction theory can flow from such an account? Well, it will be one that has a tendency to double down on the value of bodies that are, in any moment, preferred for their ontological existence and thus entirely natural resistance. Relations of domination will be conceived as relations of imposition on the natural, and I think this is partly what motivates the kind of one-size-fits-all story of transition to capital that others have criticized Federici for. I also think that this will have a negative, even if unintended, consequence in general, and for queer people in particular. Here's why. When holding that the productive violence of capital robs women of diversely realizable natural dispositions and constrains women to the social reproduction of labor power, the solution for Federici is not a revolution beyond capitalist modes of social reproduction, but instead an upper limit of recommonsing, renaturalization, and a return to a privileging of resistance instead of revolution. Uh, Federici fans out there are free to debate this. But, like, I think that's the inner structure of her position. <clears throat> of course, the emphasis on the natural body for Federici as diversely realizable and opposed to violently narrow constraints of capital seems to hold promise for a queer approach. And Federici certainly isn't one of the worst kinds of swarfy problematic feminists. Mm -hmm. Still, such naturalism really doesn't help much get off the ground. Naturalist notions of embodiment may promote non-reproductive sexual and family relations, but won't have as much to offer trans men and women, pluralizing and non-binary ways of being a gendered body, and the relational fluidity of gender both as such, and as a way individual bodies varyingly experience and reproduce themselves in their social conditions. 
Its criticism of capital's construction of the body as female, relational, and irrational misses the way all bodies can be put into relational practice beyond naturalistic limits, mm -hmm. and how this still too narrow space for socially constructed gender freedom, though not itself communism, tokens one element of the liberatory potential of desire and need satisfaction developed within but constrained by capital and its course of heterosexuality. In fact, in its very social logic, the production and reproduction of gender is never best conceived naturalistically, and social reproduction theory certainly can and should, uh, as Noah Zazanis argued yesterday morning, chart diverse communities that enable a freer relation to gendering processes. Uh, now to turn to Vogel. Vogel, too, tends to view women in a naturalist, yet naturalistic, yet even more biologically reductive way. Holding in uh, her famous and um, um, recently republished Marxism and the Oppression of Women that, quote, women's oppression in class society is rooted in their differential position with respect to generational replacement processes, uh, end quote. And she refers to women's role, quote, as childbearer, childrearer, mm -hmm. end quote, of sexually binary replacement laborers. Federici does too at times, but it really forms the core of Vogel's understanding of women's oppression. Mm -hmm. So Federici's ontological naturalism prompts a theory of social reproduction that anachronistically privileges a range of natural resistant bodies over and against their constraint to reproducing labor powers for capital, while Vogel is much clearer on relational determination. She writes, quote, the left wing of socialist movements accorded with the general premises of social reproduction pr perspective. Zetkin and Lenin reject the universal category of woman or the family as theoretical starting points. Instead, each focus on the specificity of women's oppression in different classes in a given mode of production, end quote. Yet, what is put into relational determination? And the scope of what counts as a compelling relation is for Vogel quite biologically reductive. Her theory of social reproduction recognizes that women bear the disproportionate burden of socially reproductive labor, but what woman amounts to is now primarily conceived in a naturalism of reproductive powers, beginning with biological reproduction and gestation. She indeed supposed that, quote, biological differences constitute the material precondition for the social construction of gender difference, end quote. So, whereas Federici gave us an ontological naturalism of bodies violated by capital, Vogel gives us an ontological naturalism of biology as the key to genders. So, Vogel's relational determination of powers uh, is, is quite valuable. I think we need to understand powers in a thoroughly relational and historical way. But it reaches its limit in the biological determination of sex and then gender. This theoretical shortcoming produces a version of social reproduction theory in which women are sexed female and confined to a subordinate but nonetheless necessary role in both family and capitalist economy due to their biologically reproductive function. Now, as will be obvious, this notion of women ignores the discursive, desiring, pragmatically lived approaches to gendering that have very little to do with how one is sexed at the start and what biologically reproductive capacity is assumed to lie at the basis of that sexing. The impoverished notion of sex and perhaps an altogether absent notion of gender leaves Vogel's social reproduction theory little room to theorize queer and especially trans oppression. We get material determination instead of a natural ontology, but biology rather than relational practices is the matter we're given to work with. Uh, so I, I think you know we can just refer back to Mark, the first of Marx's theses on Feuerbach, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, in some ways, uh, what I've just done isn't totally fair. It's only because Federici and Vogel are so damn important as truly original canonical thinkers of an expanded Marxist feminism that I can even be here today and do this kind of thinking. So I really want to insist that the criticisms aren't so much against Federici and Vogel themselves so much as their, or really more importantly, any theory that conceives bodies as ontologically natural or conceives the material relations of gender merely biologically. And against these theoretical problems, I used Federici and Vogel's text to draw our attention to, I want to suggest that all is not lost. Social reproduction theory can be developed in more compelling, even more Marxist ways. So in the little time I have left, I want to suggest that social reproduction theory isn't itself the problem, and in fact, it has some valuable resources to do better than the shortcomings I've laid out. At its best, social reproduction theory shows the necessity of studying, and then actually studies, how the material forces of gender, sex embodiment, desire, family relations, and so much more are not only lived and reproduced, but deeply changed through their reproduction. Social reproduction theory can be committed to a relational and historical determination of sex and gender. In any epoch and for the foreseeable future, we are and certainly are unav unavoidably bodies. And I don't want to deny that fact. 
But what that amounts to isn't a whole lot until we know what those bodies are up to, including how they are sexed and gendered in tons of different ways. Since Federici is at least right to show how bodies can be formed by relations of domination, and Vogel is right to insist on the specificity of women's oppressions through a materialist analysis of their class causes, we can read against the grain. I think it's possible to develop a theory of social reproduction that shows sex and gender as transformed by both the histories of resistance and the enveloping, evolving, and dominating social relations resistance throws into question and sometimes even successfully revolts against. In this way, I also think that social reproduction theory's emphasis on historically, historical unfolding is really well situated to show how natural and biologically essentialist regimes of sex and gender are merely passing uh, in both senses of the term. Okay. Uh, concentrations, concentrations in cities, uh, as Michelle O'Brien has persuasively argued, made certain kinds of queer culture possible, which set the stage for and reproduced the forms of gendering and desiring open to us to live through and to change in the course of our very living through. We have them as possibilities as a result of social historical change, and we can contribute to that unfolding process. We can see right now just how the normative force of those regimes uh, and, and ones that exist today are subject to criticism by the emergence and reproduction of queer, way, queer and new ways of being and making life. The political and logical queerness of this relational and historical version of social reproduction theory can also provide the tools needed to recognize roles that purportedly traditional notions of sex and gender play in revanchist tendencies we see reemerging today. Um, as well as the necessity of radically queer political responses to the reemergence of revanchist, proto, or outright fascist tendencies. Um, by that I mean, if your anti-fascism isn't also militantly pro-queer, you're, you're doing it wrong. Um, I'll end by saying uh, that, that this social, relational, perfect, on time, okay. Uh, I'll end by, by saying that this social, relational, and historical approach to the material that meaningfully determines our bodies as sexed and gendered points us to a theory of social reproduction that has a liberatory horizon. Our sexed and gendered bodies are constrained and contorted by capital and not in equal ways. Our processes of growing into our cis, trans, non-binary, and fluid selves is fraught and gendering in capitalism is for only a vanishingly few an easy, comfortable, or fulfilling process. I'm not even sure if vanishingly few is, it's probably zero. zero. Gender, gender might itself be a form of violence. I'm, I'm open to that, that mode of thinking. All right. Um, Social reproduction theory provides the theoretical framework to understand how that, uh, how that difficult process um, is differentially experienced through the combined and socially mediated ways we navigate our desires, our needs, and how they're made varyingly possible for different groups of us. When those desires and needs are lived and reproduced in frustrated forms, that imminent contradiction prompts a political conclusion. The political conclusion is we need a different, freer organization through which we can multiply rather than constrain and foreclose our possibilities for finding fulfillment. In other words, we need communism. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Social reproduction must be queer. Finally, we have <laughs> Barms. Um, so, yeah, take it away. Hi, I'm Barms. Um, hi, hi, everyone. Um, I really appreciate, you know, the, these discussions that uh, we've just heard. And while as a non-binary, very queer construction worker, I could have a lot to say about gender and class, because I'm me, I can't limit it to that. So um, I'm taking it in a slightly different direction. Um, and <clears throat> basically because I can never think about gender and my own struggles within it without immediately thinking of other forms of oppression um, and the complicated but in some ways straightforward ways they maintain the world that we must leave. Um, so in this spirit I'm presenting a, and this must be emphasized, highly provisional inquiry into a Marxist framework for understanding identity and difference. Um, okay. <clears throat> 
It is a given, and I sure hope that it is, that class is gendered, racialized, and stu structured in other ways beyond the immediate wage relation. Uh, this is historically evident and thankfully being reappreciated with Marxism and left-wing organizing in recent years. Case in point. Um, the purpose of, of my project is to attempt to determine a Marxist framework for thinking through oppression and difference, mostly because there's a severe lack of cohesiveness around thinking through the ways in which class is structured, um, not only at the sort of broad materialist level, but um, in terms of psychology as well. Uh, the fact that there's even assumed separation of the material and psychological is an, indeed a serious barrier to more fully understanding class formation, whether we think of it as class in of itself or class for itself. Uh, this lack impedes our organizing whenever we are at a loss to explain various gendered and racialized patterns without recourse to non-Marxist uh, theory or non-materialist theory, and we instead revert to moralisms, you know, truisms, and sort of like very ad hoc uh, theoretical constellations that could be better integrated into Marxist theory, but for now are not. Um, one instance that kind of comes to mind, and it's, it, it's a great body of work and it's very useful, but it's not expressly Marxist, and I think it could be, is it's things like the psychological wage, wage in Du Bois and things like that that I think are actually very critical for understanding class. Um, okay, to, some to some degree, um, this tendency, uh, this kind of incohesiveness tends towards moralistic or crude anti-materialism and is the product of a, a lack of theoretical frameworks for thinking through oppression and different. Um, and this is fairly contentious, but if we agree that Marx had a coherent logic for understanding capital, um, then I think that same logic should be applicable for understanding ways in which capital is reproduced in its totality. Um, and this includes everything from sort of primitive or accumulation or accumulation by dispossession, the creation and maintenance of a proletariat, the creation and maintenance of commodity production and circulation. Um, it, is within, it is with this in mind um, that I've been thinking a lot about the framework of concrete and abstract labor, as well as the average rate of profit in Marx's volumes of capital, um, exploring these as a means of integrating existing theorizing on class and difference. Um, in short, this project, of which the current form is only an inquiry, uh, is also an attempt at a Marxist economy of difference. Um, and I mean Marxist, uh, I'm being fairly specific, I mean mostly Marxist content, that, or content that's immediately found in Marx and not of the broad sort of Marxist tradition. Although including that as well, but I'm, I'm overwhelmingly thinking of capital volumes one through three. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is obviously a really big undertaking to think through this. I'm not an academic, I don't have a lot of time and energy to devote to it, but um, I still think it's an interesting sort of uh, project um, and one that could be better undertook, undertaken um, as a collective project, uh, broadly speaking. Um, so, you know, this inquiry is motivated by general theoretical and communicative deficiencies in left organizing, um, whose remedy or clarification would be most useful in organizing amongst um, oppressed proletarians. Uh, I don't really need to talk about my exact definition of proletarian, but um, the point is not merely a technical distinction between whose labor is included in productive versus non-productive uh, frameworks of capitalist production, but perhaps most importantly, um, and this is really the point, um, is a key to understand like who to organize with um, as a rough guide to potential consciousness, or in other terms, who will become the class for itself. Um, and in order to do that to some extent, you know, you have to actually engage with popular forms of media and you have to sort of um, be able to meet people where they're at, not in the usual sort of condescending sense. Um, but I think that means, you know, involving yourself to some extent in online debate depends on where, where exactly we're talking about. But, you know, that's where a lot of stuff is happening and there's a lot of really bad, bad logic out there. So... <laughs> as I'm sure we've all seen at different points. Um, so assuming the centrality of engagement with non-revolutionized but potentially revolutionary people, um, meeting, meeting people where they are in my sense is more about the location and demeanor of engagement, the physical and online spaces, the camar camaraderie and respect we give and respect in return. Um, 
so I won't really talk about that. Um, okay, I'll get into a little bit more of, the the of my thesis or my hypothesis as it is at this stage. Um, again, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about uh, concrete and abstract labor in Marx, um, the average rate of profit, and just the way uh, norms are created and sort of used against individuals and sort of the, the difference between individual lived experience and the sort of um, norms that we're, we're subject to. Um, <clears throat> so I'll, in, I'll throw in some quotes from Ilyankov's Dialectics of Abstraction uh, and, and Concrete Lamer. Um, I know, Anya, Anya in the audience also used Ilyankov earlier. So I'm just going to start with some quotes from that. Um, some definitions or some ideas of the abstract and concrete come out of sort of theological debates um, involve contempt for the world of centrally perceived things, for the flesh that is characteristic of the old Christian worldview in general. This determines the fact that the abstract, uh, which is estranged from the flesh, from sensuality, from the purely cognitive, is believed to be much more valuable uh, than the concrete. And I think... Um, to some extent, you could make some comparisons there to psychological analysis of capital accumulation. There's some like interesting Freudian stuff in that. Um, and the concrete, uh, the concrete here is dirty, um, and it requires subordination to the abstract. Uh, and I think we can kind of extrapolate from that and think about how individual lived experience under normative, gender, racialized structures produces like the dirty and uh, needs the regulation of, of the abstract. <clears throat> um, another Ilyangok quote is, the concrete is here a full synonym of the centrally perceived individual, carnal, mundane, transient, <coughs> etc. Um, the abstract is a synonym, synonym of the eternal, imperishable, indivisible, divinely instituted, universal absolute. Um, and this is really kind of like the context in which a lot of what Marx is, and, and Hegel too, to some extent, is, are responding to. And this is also a, a large part of our liberalist sort of tradition. And this kind of logic you see used over and over again, um, even within critiques of capitalism and critiques of gender and whatnot. And it's, it's a bad logic. It's a bad framework. Um, and contrary to this, Marx, concrete, and abstract are mutually constitutive. Um, although it's, it's the concrete that's really the, the primary point. It's the starting place, the bedrock out of which the average appears, um, from which it is derived. Um, the abstract average does impose, but only from its origin in the concrete. Um, and Ilyankov basically says the same thing, which is the concrete, concreteness are first of all synonyms of the real links between phenomena of concatenation and interaction of all aspects and moments of the object given to man in a notion. The concrete is thereby interpreted as an internally divided totality of various forms of existence of the object, a unique combination of the given object only. Unity thus conceived is realized not through similarity of phenomena to one another, but on the contrary through their difference and opposition. Um, <clears throat> so kind of where I'm going with this to some extent. Um, Again, this is very provisional, uh, but from the from the uh, constituent elements, which are necessarily interrelated, uh, of any identity, of any sort of like normative structure of gender, of race, uh, ability, disability, etc. Uh, any particular um, any particular concrete element may not resemble the abstract norm in any sense, right? There's going to be a, a great number of deviations. Um, and that is much of live reality as an oppressed proletarian, for instance, may in fact be in opposition to the categories of oppression and exploitation just uh, that they are broadly subjected to. Just as wage labor may fail to be realized in profit, just as there are other such negative factors that are smoothed out in the average rate of profit, in the abstract that creates the profit and wage that determines the socially necessary labor time and so forth, so there are negatives or failures in the realm of identity. It is in these failures that we can perhaps better trace out the complex ways in which capital and the state appropriate 
um, indeed smooth over the negatives or aberrations, uh, but it also can potentially point to directions in what to look for in, in who to organize and how to organize. Um, because the abstract and abstract labor is a homogenizing force taking different concrete form, taken from different concrete forms, um, it is wrong to place under concrete forms some kind of homogenous um, ontology. There's some, you know, I think we can all understand that, um, that there's simply, there is no like concrete woman, man, you know, whatever. These are, um, it's a really existing abstraction, but it's not, it's not sort of a concrete embodied, you know, trans-historical sort of thing. Um, while in concrete reality, though these categories are constantly produced out of concrete people and imposed onto them with all the violence of society and the state. Um, of course, to say that there's no homogenous ontology does nothing to remove the very real and horrific, uh, horrifically violent social force that these categories rely on, and which in turn shape the concrete, which in turn is always moving towards or away from this homogene homogeneity. Um, and of course, this all exists within um, a capitalist system of value extraction and realization based on the capitalist mode of production. Uh, in this moving away or toward, we have on the one hand um, kind of a horizon of communist potential, uh, of the realization of the communist maxim from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Um, but I'm not really going to focus on that part. Uh, so apart from the more utopian aspects of queer social reproduction in theory, um, we also see in this movement away or towards a norm or an average, which is, you know, which I think is probably actually based out of real concrete experience, and, and I mean that in various ways. But um, we also see in this movement away or toward a, perni a pernicious recuperation and assimilation, whether <laughs> whether into the Borg of the Democratic Party or the <laughs> global NGO complex. And in this movement away or toward, we have a vast expanse of behavior to analyze. And in this economics, we have a lot of factors that I, I think could be integrated into a, a very specific Marxist category. Um, an economics of difference firmly based in the material, um, access to property, uh, wage differentials, whether one's wage is labor, whether one's labor is waged or unwaged, um, dispossession, incarceration, um, citizenship, non-citizenship, etc. cetera, uh, with a full appreciation for the fact that, the, that there is psychology involved in all of these cases and it's integral to the class. Um, whether it's sort of like this, the wages of whiteness, whether it's the idea that there's some sort of satisfaction in um, looking down on someone who is, uh, you know, who's unemployed or um, knowing the, the kind of comfort in knowing that they have you know, generalized access to loans, housing, protection from state violence, et cetera. Um, you know, and all of these things are sort of dominated like white, cis heteronormative um, society and, and capitalism in the US and beyond. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, these are all potential elements to be factored into in a concrete versus abstract sort of methodology um, or metaphor. Uh, as the case may be. Um, yeah, and in, in this contemporary moment where we see a lot of sort of nascent, nascent uh, or actually existing fascism, um, you know, like, you know, the, the case of like the MRA or whatever, um, you see, you see something essential in that, which is um, fundamentally, I think, uh, about the disruption um, of masculine power vis-a-vis -vis the kind of eradication of the breadwinner wage and other aspects of family economics. Um, and yeah, I, I really do think all of these things and more can be amenable to a framework based on concrete aspect <laughs> labor and indeed um, or average rate of profit, et cetera. So uh, that's a lot of stuff to kind of like unpack and think through, which is, you know, that would, it's a, it's a big project, but um, I think it's interesting. Uh, of course, all of this uh, raises some questions. Um, it, one of the first questions that raise, uh, raises is how to think about um, whether or not you would use this as sort of a metaphor or you use it as a, a specific sort of method. Um, it might lean more towards metaphor, but I do think it's possible to use it as, as a more 
as, as a method, or at least it's worth trying it. Um, and if you're using it as a method, well, then I think you, you definitely need to think of some ways of quantifying some of this information. Um, and but that then you know, raises questions about what you know what date what kind of data do you collect? Um, you know how would you even begin to categorize that? What what existing sources are there? What would have to be created? Um, so I don't know. It's it's something I'm I'm very interested in, but it it may not ultimately be worth it. I don't know. Uh, and that's the other aspect of it where there's this kind of you know like inheritance from like positivism and everything else, it's like desire to quantify so you can be like a serious Marxist and a serious, so, you know. Anyway, um, so when we attempt to use a novel approach to understand uh, understand the gendering, racializing, abling, et cetera, of class, um, we understand some other problems, um, which is like uh, Kate and uh, Aaron already discussed, like class to some extent is already used um, to use used to ground identitarian claims um, about especially about gender and race, albeit on a lesser scale than one would wish. Um, okay. Um, so you know, to some extent, there's already something there, and you can debate whether or not it's really productive to, you know, create a, a new category. Um, Okay, this is the force of the norm or average that is imposed on the concrete subject, whose labor and lives are the material out of which it is made, but not as a simple accumulation of homogenized elements or as an amalgamation, but a true mathematical average, true in the sense that it makes something of all values, whether they're positive or negative. The abstract, that average, includes not only concrete forms which are realized, but also those that fail. Again, it's kind of repeating some of what I already said. Um, and it also includes exemplary uh, realization, so things that, like, more fully sort of realize or more fully um, produce the the average more so than others. <clears throat> the most spectacular capitals who create the most values as those, those as as well as those which create the least per, per commodity, but would nevertheless reap the rewards to the mechanism of competition and market share. Um, of course, the more a set of values veers into the negative, there eventually produces a total disruption of the norm. Um, and here, the tendency of the falling rate of profit um, is is uh, instructive. Uh, and I don't want to go too much more into that because it gets a little wonkish, and I haven't quite fully figured out exactly what direction I want to take it. But um, basically, I just want to be able to think through um, through difference through through a more consistent framework and that really thinks of all of these things as existing in a uh, in a very real sense the same real the same sense that labor exists in in, in the wage field so um, <coughs> yeah, that's it. all right thanks